So we're singing, you make everything glorious. And I, I was thinking, uh, my wife being kind of in charge of what we're seeing, directing, whatever you want to call it, women's ministries, I get to hear things that I might not otherwise hear. <laughs> And uh, there you go. And and the ladies right now are studying. Uh, they're they're doing a series. It's it's a, a little lighter maybe than what they've done in the past, but it's really kind of focusing on on fellowship and, and each other and uh, just getting people a little more connected. But um, I think the title, if I'm if I'm correct, is "You Are a Phenomenal Creation of God." Is that right, ladies? What do women want? So what's the phenomenal creation? Okay, there you go. So it's what women want, which I have no clue. But what they're saying is we are a phenomenal creation of God. Now here's what's interesting to me. Without knowing any names, because Cheryl didn't share that with me. She did protect confidentiality. She came home from uh, the first or second week of the of the ladies' study, and she said, you know, there, there are a couple of ladies that can't say it. And it goes around, and everybody's supposed to say, I'm a phenomenal creation of God, and there are several people who just couldn't say it, couldn't bring themselves to say it. And I think it's probably because we're taught throughout our lives, even sometimes in Christian households, that uh, you know we, we've really got to be um, humble and lower than, and, 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 and we, we kind of bash on ourselves to see if we can humble ourselves before God. And uh, I, it's so funny, because we sing, and let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you believe God makes everything glorious. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I love David Crowder because in that song he writes, Well then what does that make me? Now if I asked you all to say, Do you believe that you are glorious? At least half the hands would stay down. And yet if God is glorious and He makes all things glorious and He made you, doesn't it stand to reason that you are glorious? That you have been created in the image of God. Now granted we have sin. And we are fallen. And we have some messed up things going on in our lives. But you know what? God created us to be glorious because we are touched by His hands. We are made by Him. We cannot be anything other than what He wants us to be. That's, that's the whole idea of Jesus, of, of redemption, of Him coming to this world. It's so that we could be what we were intended to be in the first place. We are God's poems. That's what Paul says, Ephesians 2.10. You are God's poema in the Greek. It says handiwork in some of your Bibles. But it's literally your God's poems. You are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which were prepared beforehand for you to do. So guess what? Tonight, in case you didn't, didn't catch it today or you missed it, you are glorious. I'd like you all to feel good about that. Amen. You are glorious. Now that is a different thing. Realizing you're glorious because of the creation of God, because of what God has done in your life, is completely different than walking around pridefully saying, I'm pretty glorious. I am a glorious dude. That's how I describe myself to my friends when they say, Hey Rick, how are you doing? Glorious. Because I am. How could I be anything other than, than just glorious? That, that's the attitude, the heart of Saul. You see, Saul... Thinks he's glorious. I'm going to do something a little different, and I, I've got a lot of notes to cover 52 verses in chapter 14 tonight, and we may not get through all of it. Those are all the, the background verses. We may only do part of it, and I may save some for Sunday just because there's so much. But I'd like tonight to start at the end of the book in verse 46. Or verse 47. We'll do verse 47. And then we're going to jump back and we'll go back to the beginning. But I want you to see a little bit of Saul. Understand Saul. Because as we saw last week, Saul is a, is a man of contrast. Now last week we saw him in contrast with Samuel. Samuel, that great intercessor, that, that wonderful man of prayer. It was Samuel the intercessor in chapter 12 versus Saul the impatient in chapter 13. We saw last week how Samuel interceded for the people, had a passion for a love for the people. We talked a lot about intercessory prayer on Sunday. But we also saw how Saul couldn't wait for Samuel to show up there at, at um, was it, is it, is it Gilgal? Thanks, Spencer. At, at Gilgal. He said, go to Gilgal, send out the call for me, and I'll be there in seven days. Well, Saul couldn't wait, so he offered up the offering himself before Samuel got there, which was against the law. Literally. It was not his to do. But he's impatient. So there's that contrast. Well, this week, as we get into chapter 14, we see two characters again. One is still Saul. 
The other is his son, Jonathan, and there's another pretty dramatic contrast. But here's the thing about Saul. Look at verse 47. It says, When Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, which is actually an area north of Damascus and Syria today, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. Which is an interesting way to put it. It's not that Saul was victorious, it's that he inflicted punishment. Saul's kind of an anti-hero in Israel. He's valiant, but he's jealous. He's courageous, but he's kind of mean-spirited. It's one thing to have victory over your enemies. It's another thing to inflict punishment upon them. And you might say, well, isn't that just the wording? Well, the problem is, the more you study Saul, the more you're going to see the character of Saul, and the more you will understand he does have a mean streak. Mean-spirited guy. He inflicts punishment. Verse 48, it says he acted valiantly. Well, all right. He defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. It's a good thing. So he's, he's back and forth. He does good. He does bad. It's like, where, where does Saul land in all this? Now, this is interesting to me. It says, verse 49, The sons of Saul were Jonathan and, and Ishbi, or some of your Bibles say Ishui, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger was Michael. You may remember Michael. She will eventually become the wife of David, a wife with some degree of disdain toward David at a certain point in his life. That's, that's coming later. Not tonight, but later. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, which makes sense, Abner. Ab means son of, and Ner was his dad, Abner. That's where it comes from. Literally, Ner means light, so Abner would be son of light. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, who was the son of Abiel. Now war, the war against the Philistines, was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. And this is what he would do. He would surround himself with fighters. Emotionally, spiritually, and physically, Saul's entire life is a battle. He's a fighting man. He will fight against the enemies. He will fight ultimately against David, the second king of Israel, he will even fight, as you'll see tonight, against his own son. Because Saul is a fighting man. His life is embattled. It's war-torn. Why is that? Because bottom line, he is a soul man. (laughs) He fights out of his soul. He lives out of his soul. Now, in case you don't understand the definition or haven't heard the definition of soul versus spirit, soul is the mind. It's the intellect. It's the human will. It's where we think in our flesh. The Spirit is where God would take us. It's what the Lord wants for us. It's it's where we need to go. Into the spiritual as opposed to the fleshly or the soul. And Saul lives out of his soul. And it's interesting, when you look at the names even of his children, you can start to see the change in his life. Jonathan's his firstborn son means gift of God. Or Jehovah's gift. Very cool. It's a faithful name to give a son. And yet, even by the birth of his second son, we can see a shift in, Paul, in Saul's attitude, in Saul's thinking, and that is, Ishvi means, just like me. It went from gift of God to, just like me. Now go back to the beginning of chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20, 24 says, Proud, haughty, scoffer, are his names who acts with insolent pride. Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Father, we pray that you will show us the difference between a humble spirit and a prideful spirit. Father, I truly believe that you would not humiliate your people, but you do want us to learn humility. You do want us to approach as those who are humble because we recognize Lord how great you are so teach us Father to be humble Father I believe this has dramatic impact in the way that we pray as we talk about intercessory prayer as we talk about interceding for others and standing in that gap Lord we need to be humble people otherwise Father if we're prideful 
Our prayers will continue to be about us. So I pray that you will begin to work, and I probably don't even really know what I'm saying here, Lord, but I ask it anyway that you begin to work at pulling down our pride and allow us to approach you joyfully, Father, but humbly. And be our teacher tonight through this great chapter. Help us to see these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about pride and realizing that, that pride is hard work. It is hard work. For the, see, the, the proud man has to always guard and hide his frailty. The proud man has to make sure that the way he comes across to other people shows strength. Because you don't want people to know. You don't want people to see your failures. You don't want people to see anything that might strip away that self-righteous pride. And so the proud man has to work hard. He has to be vigilant. The self-righteous has to keep it all together and has to hide away his sin where no one can find out about it. Because it might burst the bubble of pride. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. Working really hard to keep up some kind of front so that other people won't really know what's going on in your life. So that other people won't really recognize that in your heart you're frightened like a child. Pride, it's, it's hard work. If you've been in that place or if you are there, maybe you'll understand Saul a little bit better tonight. Again, he is a, he's a studying contrast. Israel's anti-hero. He fights valiantly, though not for Israel. Not even for the Lord. He fights valiantly for Saul. When he fights, he calls on the name of the Lord, but even that is not for the people. That is not for the Lord. Saul calls on the name of the Lord for Saul. Wait, wait, you're saying that's a bad thing that he's calling on the name of the Lord? I'm saying if you look at the motive of his heart, when he calls on the name of the Lord, it is to keep up the appearance that he is a godly king, when in fact he is not. And this is this is this man, Saul, a soul man, a man of the flesh. Les and I were talking about this today. A lot, of, a lot of good people do good things from the soul. In fact, one of the hardest people, in my mind, to, to bring the gospel to. One of the most difficult people in the world is not someone who's flat out messed up. It's someone who's good. Just a good person, a humanitarian. Someone who loves people and, and lives right and is a good citizen and votes whichever party you prefer I almost said mine which is okay I mean, I'm not going to try and tell you all to vote the way I'm, I'm just going to leave that behind right now a lot of a lot of people are just really good and when you start to talk to them about Jesus the answer is well what do I need him for I, I even believe Jesus was a good guy what do I need church for I, I care for people I give to charitable organizations. I know people who go on mission trips who don't even believe in Jesus. But they're good people. The problem is all the goodness they do is coming out of the soul as opposed to the spirit. We are called to live by the spirit. It's kind of funny because there are messed up people who are walking with Jesus. Rocky, you know, quaky, flaky, but they're going to be saved. Because they're relying on grace. And there's some really good people in this world that are not going to be saved because they're going to hold up their goodness before the Lord and say, What do you think? I'm glorious. <laughs> this is me. I, this is what I have to offer. And God's going to look and say, Yeah, but you need to understand. No one's righteous. No, not one. Except that you put on the righteousness of Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's freedom in Christ. In living out of the Spirit man that I was created to learn to live in. Adam would be called the Spirit man before the fall, after the fall. And in the decision that caused the fall, he lived out of his soul, out of the flesh, eating of the things of the earth. Now I think about Saul and I think perhaps if he had held on to the word, perhaps if he had been a student of Torah, he might have avoided his fate. In fact, if he had lived out the Deuteronomic prescription for a king, he might have been much better off. I believe that's why David was a man after God's own heart. 
And you say, the Deuteronomic prescription. Well, we've read this a couple times. Let me read it again to you. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. The Lord said, It shall come about when a king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Now the law at that time is the first five books. Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some of that was law. Some of it was simply God moving among his people. Being a shield, as we sang, for Abraham. Genesis 15 is where that comes from. The stories, the history, the love of God poured out to people. The king was to go through that. To write out a copy. Have you ever written out a copy of the Torah? That might be an interesting exercise. Get some scratch pads, a pencil, and just start writing, copying down from Genesis through Deuteronomy. Yeah, I, I never even thought about doing that myself, but you do it. It'd be good for you. He says, <laughs> verse 19, it says, It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. So he writes it, he reads it. Why? So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, listen, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. And that's Saul's problem. His heart is lifted up. Had he read the law, had he written the law, had he meditated on it day and night, had he feasted on the word, I absolutely believe he would have been more humble. In fact, he would have been humbled by the process. Had he been reading from Genesis through Deuteronomy, he would have at minimum, he would have learned that he should not even have the scepter. As we talked about, he shouldn't even be the king. For Genesis 49 tells us the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. The scepter was, the kingly line was from Judah. Judah was the tribe that would lead out. Judah was the tribe from whom would come the kingly line of Israel. And Saul knew he was from Benjamin. Had he been reading the law and come across that a few times, he might have thought, wow, the fact that I sit on this throne is an act of grace. But he didn't. Gang, where there's spiritual pride, there is often a lack of time spent with the Lord in His Word. I had to insert with the Lord in His Word. I originally, when I was writing my notes, thought about that. and I wrote, where there's spiritual pride, there's a lack of time spent in the Word. And that's not necessarily true. There are some people who spend a lot of time in the Word, but not with the Lord in the Word. And there's a big difference, because the Lord will show you what you need to see in the Word when you open up the Bible to study, to read, to learn. Make sure it's not just head knowledge you're going after, but it's heart change. And you're asking the Father by His Spirit to teach you and walk with you through the study of the Word. And when you do that, it is very hard to not be humble. It's very hard to be prideful. It changes you in a beautiful way. Saul didn't do that. Let's, let's look and see what happens here. Verse 1 of chapter 14. It says, Now the day came that Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gabeah, this was his hometown, under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migran. Not because he had a headache, it was just called Migran. And there were people who were with him, they were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, <laughs> the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So immediately there is a contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Before we go any further, we understand Jonathan was a raider. This is now the second time we see this young man take his armor bearer and go after an entire garrison of the Philistines. Second time. He did it back in chapter 13, wiped him out. This is a courageous guy. This is, this is kind of the model Israelite Jonathan is. Jonathan would be a picture of old of some of the Israelis in 1948 and some of the exploits that happened in the War of Independence or the war, uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. I've been reading some of those stories and it's amazing what these guys did. You know, just think that they, 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 you wouldn't... One guy charging exactly what Jonathan did, take it on a garrison. He's a raider. Saul, on the other hand, is a player. He's a player. He's wearing a mask. He's, he's wearing a role. Why do you say that? I mean, maybe not much has been said, but we do know that he's at Gabeah, but he's under the pomegranate tree. And the pomegranate tree, then and now, is a symbol of victory. Saul is hanging out under the pomegranate tree. Now, I'm making an assumption, and I may be reading into this, so I'll just let you know that ahead of time, but I believe Saul is sitting there wearing the crown of victory. 
Remember the previous chapter, there had been a fight. Saul had won a battle, so now he's sitting under the, under the pomegranate tree, kind of resting on his laurels. Not his laurels, actually, Jonathan's. Because if you remember from the previous chapter, Jonathan took out that garrison, and Saul went around Israel tooting his own horn. Saying, hey, take it out, I'm a great king, we're winning the battle. Yes, Jonathan did it, but it was me, you know. He's taking credit for Jonathan's actions. He's sitting home under this pomegranate tree, playing the role of a victor, while there are active Philistine garrisons sprinkled across the countryside. He should be out fighting a war. He should be out protecting Israel at this point. But he's hanging out at home eating pomegranates while Jonathan is fighting. And I want you to understand something here. If there is still a garrison of the enemy in your territory, there are battles yet to fight. But sometimes we shrink back and sit under the pomegranate tree enjoying victory when there's still battles that need to be fought. Pretense of victory is dangerous. In the spiritual life, in the Christian life as we live, the pretense of victory leads us to spiritual apathy. Pretense of victory says, I've conquered that sin, that's not a problem for me anymore, I can handle it. Pretense of victory. What does Paul say? Philippians 2.12, he says, You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It doesn't mean you work for your salvation. You can't. Your salvation is an act of grace, a gift of grace from God, but you do work out your salvation. How do you do that? You work out in it. You exercise within your salvation. You function as a person who is saved. You continue to work out. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, run in such a way that you may win. Well, wait, Paul. You're telling me in Ephesians that I am saved by grace and I've already won. And you're now, now telling me run in such a way that I might win? Yes, exactly. You have one. Now run like it. You are strong. Now work out. You are a saved individual. Now live that way. Pretense of victory, however, leads to spiritual apathy. And spiritual apathy leads to spiritual atrophy. I had a little dog named Jacques who, uh, who died when I was a child. You can have, make a sad noise if you'd like to. Thank you. It was devastating. Jacques stopped walking around. He just stopped walking. We put him on the leash and we'd take him for a walk and it was a real drag. And we came to find out the problem was that his muscles in his back leg were atrophying. He had a disease that was just causing his muscles to shrink up and stop functioning. And then he got to where he couldn't walk. And then he got to where ultimately we had him put to sleep. And you know, in our Christian life, if we are not exercising the spiritual muscle God has given us, they will atrophy and we will lose our walk. We won't be able to walk in the Lord in the way He's called us to. We won't certainly be able to run in, what, in such a way that we may win. And it all comes back to, I think we can tie it back to a pretense of victory. I thought I was fine. I thought I had conquered that area of sin in my life to the point that I can dabble in it now and it's okay. And the Lord would say, no, run like a winner. Head for the tape. Don't think about anything else. You head for home. This is where you're called. Jonathan understands that. Saul doesn't. There are Philistine garrisons. Saul's kicking back by the pomegranate tree. But Jonathan is a raider. And he's out there fighting. Verse 4 tells us that between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinna. Verse 5, the one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. And you might say, why do they name the rocks? And I would say, why do we name boats? And we just name things. I don't know. But these two rocks had specific names. Bozes and Stina. And Jonathan would have to utilize this mountain pass to get at the Philistines. And what's interesting, this this chapter 14, it said historically that the famous British general Allenby read and studied this chapter of the Bible before his attack on the Ottoman Turkish Empire in World War I. His successful attack. But the night before the attack, he was studying 1 Samuel chapter 14. He was looking literally at the battle tactics, the military attack of Jonathan. And studying it and learning from it because this is where Allenby was. He was in this region 
a region where there were sharp crags and, and he passes that he had to move through and he used those to his advantage when he fought against the Turks interesting but these are named and I believe they're here for a reason sometimes you read by something that verse 4 the name of one crag was Bozes and the name of the other crag was Sin and you read that and you think okay whatever and you just keep going on let me remind you that the Father puts in the Bible what He wants in the Bible. That everything's there for a reason. You may not fully understand it. You may have to go back to it again and again. But everything is there for a reason. So why are Bozes and Sin are the name of these two crags through which Jonathan would have to march in his attempt to take out this Philistine garrison? The names of the two crags, Bozes means surpassing white or glistening. Surpassing white or glistening Revelation 2.17, Jesus said something interesting. He said, To him who overcomes, to the victor, literally, I will give a white stone and a new name written on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. The white stone, when Jesus made that comment to John, would have been understood in the culture as either a sign of innocence, as in a jury trial, if the jury set forth a black stone, well, that was guilty, but if they set forth a white stone, it was innocence, or it also was an invitation to a feast a friend might drop by your house and stick a white stone in your hand you look down and there maybe marked on the stone is the time and the place but it was an invitation to a feast and so when Jesus says in Revelation 2.17 if you overcome if you're the victor I'll give you a white stone it is both a sign of your innocence but also an invitation to a feast that's what he's saying and I think about this this rock named Bozes glistening white remember the, the spirit puts things here on purpose the other stone, the other crag, is named Sinna, which means thorny. So you have glistening white, the, the symbol of victory, and you have thorny. And Jonathan would have to pass through these two stones on his way to victory. As do you and I. We look forward. Paul says, not that I have already attained it, but I reach forward. I press on for the prize. That, that's my goal. That's what I'm headed for. But on the way there... Well, Paul had a thorn in his side, didn't he? And the way can be rocky and difficult. Your car alarm might go off in the middle of Bible study. You never know what's going to happen, what problems you may have to face. Jonathan would have to get through the thorns to get the prize. It wasn't easy for him to go and wipe out a Philistine garrison. Fighting is never easy. But he would have to do that. We know we have the prize. We've got the white stone already attained for us by Jesus. But there are thorny passes that we are called to endure along the way. And life is going to be tough. And life is not always going to be a cakewalk for you. And that's okay. Walk it out, man. Because when you're going through the stony pass and you're having to climb on those rocks and it's difficult terrain, guess what? You're working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you're getting stronger for it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17 For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So he goes through these two crags, Bozaz and Sinna. Verse 6 tells us, Then Jonathan said to his young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. They have this highlighted. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or a few. Isn't that great? What's going on for you? It's Joel. It's Joel? Tell him Pastor Rick said he's about to get kicked out of the church. <laughs> Jonathan says, and here's again, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by a few. In other words, there aren't so many of you that you can mess up God's salvation and there aren't so few of you that it can't be accomplished. The Lord can work through thousands to do amazing things he can work through one to do amazing things he's not restrained either way it's God's mathematics it's the way God does things he is he is amazing he is different than us and it tells us going on verse 7 his armor bearer said to him and this guy's got some courage too he says do all that is in your heart turn yourself and here I am with you according to your desire whatever you say John I'm with you I'm behind you let's go let's fight God's math is exponential his economy works that way. It may not calculate out by human wisdom. It may not make sense in the way that we think. It might not work out on paper. But God is not restrained either by our strength or by our lack of strength. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.7, we have a treasure in earthen vessels. 
so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of us. And we could amass a great Christian army out there and march on Washington to have, for example, the Ten Commandments placed back in every public place and in every school in the nation and we could fail miserably. And if the Lord wants it to be so, one person could knock on the door of the White House and say, hey, could we have the Ten Commandments back? And boom, it would happen. Because God is not restrained by our strength or our weakness. He will accomplish His great will. Well, verse 8 says, Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> and if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands and this shall be a sign to us. So while Saul sits back, Jonathan steps up. While Saul relaxes, Jonathan goes out on a raid. And you might say in in reading this, is it okay, Jonathan, to do this? Seems like you're kind of tying God's hands here a little bit. You're saying, okay, here's here's the deal. Father, if if they say, wait and we'll come to you, then we stand and we'll wait. But if they say, come up, then, then that's going to be our sign, Father. That's going to be you telling us, go fight them. Seems like Jonathan's just giving God one of two possible options here. Is that all right? Isn't Jonathan maybe forcing God's hand a little bit? And I don't believe he is. In fact, I think what we're seeing is a great statement of faith. Jonathan is seeking godly confirmation for something the Lord has already commanded for Israel, and that is go take the land. Jonathan knew this was God's call. On all of Israel. Take the land. Spread out. Occupy it. Live in it. I have given it to you. Jonathan knows this. This is a foundational principle gang in faith. When there's something God has said will be and has been given to you, you don't need to question him on it. Move forward in it. If it's a question of tactics and you already know it's what God wants you to do, then say, okay, which way do I go here, Lord? Either way, I'm here to take the land. But which way are you leading me? Which way do you want me to go? And Jonathan, who I think is probably a student of the Word, went back and and, and could have read Genesis 15, Genesis 26, Genesis 28. What are those? It's God's promise of the land to Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then on through Jacob. Each one of those chapters is God proclaiming to each one of those men the land would belong to their line. That's important, by the way, because there are those who say, oh yeah, God promised land to Abraham, but then he had two sons, Ishmael and and Isaac, and and maybe I'm of Ishmael over here, so the land should be mine too. God God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And God made sure not only to promise Abraham the land, but to promise Isaac the land, and then Jacob the land. And we can follow that through very specifically. There's no question, but to whom God has given the land. The land was then promised through Moses. It was taken by Joshua. Jonathan, at his place in history, knows this. And so he is walking in the will of the Father with faith. And he's saying, but show us how to fight here, Lord. And I believe we can do that and are called to. He's got a true heart for the promises of God. He's just looking for confirmation. So verse 11 says, When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, again, <laughs> Yoo-hoo, here we are. The Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. They begin taunting Jonathan. Not unlike a scene out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which you haven't seen that, I won't go into it tonight. But he's taunting them. The Philistines are saying, oh, oh, I guess you've come out of the rocks now. There's an interesting little creature in Israel called a rock badger. And if you go there, you can see them. They, they literally pop up out of the rocks. And they can go in between. It's amazing. Tiny little spots in the rocks. They're pretty good. They look like almost like land beavers. I mean, they're about that big and fuzzy. Don and Emily, you've seen them? Have you there? Yeah, they're all over. Got to go back and see them. They're all over the place. Anyway, these little things, big fuzzy creatures about that big, and they will slip in between the rocks and they slip back out. And that's probably what the Philistines are referring to here. Oh, you guys are a bunch of little rock badgers. You Israelites scared, hiding under your pomegranate trees. Now you're showing up. So they begin to taunt. And it says, in verse 12, the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into my hands because I'm a great warrior. Oh no, I didn't say that. He says the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Jonathan, and you'll see this even more, is a humble man who knows his place. He's just fighting for Israel. 
Yes, his dad, Saul, is king, but that doesn't matter to Jonathan. What matters is Israel. And he is fighting for the people. And he says the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Verse 13, Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. So Jonathan goes down there, he's just slashing and fighting, taking out the Philistine garrison and the armor bearer, who's just supposed to be carrying the armor, he's kind of, you know, there's a guy who's still down, and go, you know, he's fighting behind him and, and making sure kind of cleaning up the mess, and they take these guys out. Awesome. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half of a furrow and an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, even the garrison and the raiders trembled. Everybody's getting freaked out. Oh, what's going on? There's a bloody battle. There's something going on over there. Israel's attacking. And it was just Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're freaking out. And I love this. It says, And the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Perhaps you've heard this, that you and God make a majority. Just one person with the Lord. And I love how the Lord steps in. The people are trembling in fear because of Jonathan's faith and his fierce fighting. And then God says, I've got to kick in here a little bit. And he brings about an earthquake. He says, you're trembling, I'm going to make you tremble. And everybody begins to shake and quake. And I think of a quote from William Carey, that great missionary, who said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Attempt great things for him. Stick your neck out. Go against the garrison. Fight. Be willing. Be an adventurer. Step out for the Lord and expect him to do great things. Daniel 11.32 Specifically speaking historically of the Maccabees who would come after Daniel wrote this. I'll let you work that out in your minds historically but it was prophetic. It was written, The people who know their God will display strength and take action. Les prayed earlier that we would, we would speak with boldness. It was the prayer of the believers in Acts chapter 4. He said, Lord, make us bold. Make us bold so we can step up and, and speak your name with courage and confidence that we would step out for you. And I love that verse. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. And it doesn't matter if there are a lot of you or a few. Jonathan knows his God so now not only a garrison is raided, not only are 20 Philistines fallen, but the ground is shaking and the entire Philistine army is freaking out all because one little guy and his armor bearer trusted in God who came alongside them and brought about this great earthquake. It reminds me that Jesus said in Matthew 16:18, He said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now maybe you Bible students have thought about that before. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Gates don't attack. They get attacked. And so the very implication that Jesus is going to build his church and there's going to be conflict between the church and the gates of Hades tells us something. It tells us that we're supposed to storm the gates of Hades. It tells us the church is supposed to go head to head with the very gates of hell. That we battle again. We're not waiting. The gates aren't coming out of hell and going up against us. We are fighting against the gates of hell. Why? To save those who would be captured in those gates. In the name of Jesus Christ and by His power. Jesus implies we take the battle right up to the gates of hell. We're not told to sit under our church pomegranate trees thinking the victory is taken care of, happy and comfortable with our brand new heater. You know, we are to be out there speaking the name of Jesus. That's the call on the Christian life. How do we do this? How do we not sit back? How do we go out and and fight? And the answer, gang, is what we've been talking about. It's intercessory prayer. I believe it's first and foremost intercessory prayer before you ever speak Jesus name to another person pray for them intercede for them on their behalf in the spirit to the Lord asking him to save and then talk to them about Jesus pray first this is an old adage maybe you've heard Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees And so Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.18 With all prayer and petition pray at all times in the Spirit And with this in view be on the alert With all perseverance and petition for all the saints Intercede gang Pray for the saints Pray for the lost Be intercessory prayers So Jonathan attacks 
and he routs a garrison. God throws in an earthquake for good measure. Watch the result. Verse 16 says, Now Saul's watchmen in Gabeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude, that is the multitude of Philistines, melted away, and they went here and there. So what's happening is now all of the, the guys keeping watch for Saul are going, um, Dude, the Philistines are dissipating. They're, they're going home. They're leaving. What's, what's happening down there? And they can't figure it out. They don't understand why suddenly there's this massive evaporation in fear of the entire Philistine army that's down there. Verse 17, so Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who's gone from us. So he's figured it out. Someone's gone down there. Someone's stirring up a ruckus. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. I really wonder if Saul thought it'd be, you know, 60, 70 men, 300 men who snuck away in the night. And they did a counting of the entire army, and the only two people were missing, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they must have looked again and saw all the Philistines running for their lives and went, What is going on? One guy goes down there to fight. Verse 18, then Saul said to Ahijah, Uh, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. And while Saul talked to the priests, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. They're running crazy. They're out of control right now. They're they're so fearful. And Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. What's going on here? Saul's in the same place he was last week. There is a victory that is beginning to take place without him and he can't have that. So he calls for the ark. Bring the ark in so that we can, you know, do the right thing there. Do we have to do, you know, thank you, Lord. And then go out and fight the battle ourselves. He wants to get involved. He's trying to protect his pride. He wants to go out and fight. But, but then the commotion increases to where there's not enough time to get the ark there for the priest to do what he needs to do. And so what does Saul say? Ah, forget it. Withdraw your hand. There's no time right now. So he starts out from the soul saying we need to ask God's help in this but because he's in the soul when he realizes not, there's really not time to ask for God's help he says forget it forget it let's move on we've got other things more important things to do it's, it's busy so he says belay the order i got to get busy fighting now and so verse 20 it says then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle and behold every man's sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion In other words, Philistines are killing Philistines. They don't even know what they're doing. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, don't miss that, there were Jewish people who were hanging out with the Philistines who had just kind of accepted their rule and authority and were living there and, and even were part of their army. The Hebrews who were with them previously, who went up with them, all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, so here's some other fearful cowards they've been hiding out, when they heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Beth Haven. I want you to understand something. As this victory began to unfold, the Hebrews who were wimping out, even the Jewish people who were allied with the enemy, returned to Israel and their courage was bolstered. All because one guy and his armor bearer had faith. The impact spread out among all the people. That happens in church, by the way. One person steps up in faith. And people who were hiding out before, people who even were siding somewhat with the enemy, begin to get excited. And they begin to rally around the person that God has called, and things begin to happen. And all it takes is just one person. Can the Lord use you? Can God use just one person to rally his people? He did with Jonathan. I was in a youth ministry conference several years back, and I never, this really lit the fuse under me for youth ministry. It was early on. And I was kind of questioning, you know, do I really want to do youth ministry or not? And this guy got up and he said, if God gives you one teenager, can you change the city in which you live? And my immediate answer, my, my, my spirit just left and went, yeah, yeah, but I, it doesn't matter. I, and at the time, I had a very small youth group. Not one to be compared with some of the other guys who were sitting there in the same conference who had big youth groups and were very successful. Mine was really tiny and, and I'm like, yeah. It doesn't have to be big. I just need one. One kid on fire. 
And then their friend who's been lit on fire, and it spreads, and it spreads. And over and over and over in the scripture we see this. This is God's economy. Starting with the little. And exploding exponentially. It's the power of the Lord moving in the heart of one man. It's the power of the Lord speaking through a single burning bush. Or talking through a donkey. Or the power of the Lord in a single sack lunch. Or a church with little strength that changes its world. Revelation 3 verse 8. Jesus wrote to the church in Philadelphia and he said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. This is the evangelical church. This is the church that is going out and saving the world. This is the mission-focused church. I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have little strength. Not because you're powerful. Not because you're great. Not because you have glorious cathedrals and huge denominations. No. I've opened the door wide for you because you have little strength but have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a powerful combination. Don't deny Jesus. Keep his word and have a little strength. So here's the good news. You can be a wimp, but if you keep his word and cling to Jesus, God will open doors. God will do what God does. I believe the Lord loves risk takers of the faith. People who will stand up, men and women, who will bring about revival simply because they in and of themselves believed that God would act. Jonathan believed in the God of Israel, acted on that, and the revival spread throughout Israel. Now verse 24 says the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. Saul, what are you doing? What is he doing here? He's inserting himself into Jonathan's victory. He's now making it about himself. Jonathan didn't even say it was for himself, it was for Israel, right? But now Saul wants to be avenged on his enemies. This is the same guy who just hours before was sitting under the pomegranate tree. Now suddenly he wants to fight because something is stirred up. And what always seems to happen when we live out of our soul, when we live in our flesh, is we make life harder on other people. Even in the church, there are so many... We had staff meeting this morning and we were talking about this. And just sharing how there is a tendency in churches to leave the simple for the programming. And the more program you have, the more people have to be involved to make the program run. And eventually you get big churches full of just tired people. And it's living out of the soul. And the churches that are enthusiastic and filled with people who are ignited and on fire for the Lord, I almost guarantee this, they're probably pretty simple. They probably teach the word. They have a few small groups here and there. They love to worship. And God works in that. But Saul is the opposite. He's the soul man. And he's thinking, and he's like, okay, we've got to get, we get these Philistines now, and I need some motivation. Motivation. Soul man thinking motivation says, I'm going to make it hard on my people. Don't you dare eat a thing. This would be like if Sunday morning I stood up and said, now Thursday we're going to have a day of prayer and fasting. Don't you dare eat anything. If I find out that a single one of you has a bite to eat that day, we'll have a whole week of fasting. How's that? And this is what Saul is doing, though. He's saying, no one gets to eat today until I've avenged myself on my enemies. He's acting directly out of his soul. This is what the soul does. Verse 25, all the people of the land entered the forest there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. They're chasing after the Philistines. They're looking around and going, oh, oh, I, I, I can just, I could taste it, but I can't because I'm under a curse. Saul made me take an oath before the Lord. I can't violate that. No man put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. So now instead of chasing the Philistines with with bravado and courage and bravery, they're chasing the Philistines scared to death. Because they can't even eat. And if they do, they're busted. Good job, Saul. Reminds me of my uh, employer at McDonald's. When I was in high school, he used to say, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. And I hated that guy. I'd be working at the cash register. No one's coming in, so I just kind of, you know, 
Just lean up against the couch. Crawford, if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. And that's what Saul's doing with the people. No coffee breaks, no donut runs. Don't you touch that honey and let's avenge ourselves on my enemies. Unfortunately, Jonathan didn't even know about it. He hadn't heard the word. And verse 27 says, Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. And then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Curse be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. This could have been a great, a great slaughter, a great routing of the Philistines. Man, grabbing some honey, fighting, yeah, we got him, we got him. But instead the people just, okay, the fast is almost over, we're almost there. Keep fighting, hang in there. The people were weary, verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Saul wanted a great slaughter, wanted to wipe them out. This was a good thing. In fact, this was even a God thing. God wanted the Philistines wiped out. But because of Saul's sole action, the people were too weary to wipe out the Philistines and didn't accomplish what he hoped for in the first place. Jonathan recognized this. And you know what this makes me think of? Jonathan, picture him running through the forest, chasing the, the Philistines, sees the honey, scoops it up. He's eating. He's got a chunk of, of honeycomb dripping down his hand. He's just having a great time eating. And he's enlightened. His eyes are bright. He's perked up. And he's ready to fight more. And he's looking around. And people are dragging. And it reminds me, Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, these stories that are in 1 Samuel are all true. This is all history. We've talked about this, that throughout the Bible, there's a lot of history here. But this is not all the history of Israel. This is not every battle that they ever fought. We only have in the scriptures before us what God said, that story goes in. I want to make sure they hear this one. God saw fit to have Jonathan running through the forest, scooping up honey right and left, and invigorated for the battle. Why? Because it's the same thing for us. If we scoop up honey along the way. Psalm 19 verse 8 says, The word, which we understand, honey, it's a picture of the word itself. The word, the honey, it's enlightening to the eyes. What happened to Jonathan when he ate the honey? It enlightened his eyes. It brightened his step. And time spent feeding, in the, with, feeding, feeding my spirit on the word is always time well spent. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.8 that bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. The flesh says there's no time to stop and eat the honey. I just don't have time. i got battles to fight. i got work to accomplish today. I'll get to the word later. But it's always better when you scoop a little up along the way. And you know, it's so simple. You can do this during the day. Grab a verse. Your word was found and, and, and I did eat it. And it was a delight. Grab a single verse. Keep your Bible if you have an office on your desk. And as you're going through the day, if you're getting weary, open up and read a verse. Go to one place. I, Russ called me a little while back and, and said, you know, it was early in the morning on, I guess it was two weeks ago Wednesday. What are you studying tonight? I think chapters 12 through 13. Okay, bye. Click. <laughs> and I found out he just wanted to know so he could read ahead. And I guarantee when you do that, when you take little snacks ahead of time and then you come in on a Wednesday night, it's better. Because you've had a taste. You know, all day long you have that little taste. Oh, so that's what we're going to study. Man, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I wonder what that's going to... What are you going to do with this? People were asking that all the way through Leviticus. What are we going to do with this? <laughs> How are we going to study Leviticus chapter 15? You know, which is all about the, you know, 
emissions and things like that. We got through it. It was an interesting evening, but we got through it. Verse 32. It says, The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Now, aside from being gross, does anyone see a problem with this? All because Saul said, you can't eat. When they finally did fall upon their enemy, when they finally could eat, it's finally evening now, they are so hungry, they are ravenous. And they start tearing into the flesh, and there is blood all over the place. Because of Saul's hasty curse, the people end up facing a holy curse. Leviticus 17.10 says, Any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. Why? What's the big deal, God? He tells us, verse 11, Leviticus 17, it's by the way the key verse of the book of Leviticus, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement, and later it will be the blood of Jesus Christ that doesn't just make atonement for us, but makes propitiation. Do you know the difference? Bible students, do you remember the difference? Atonement means covering. Propitiation, which is used in the New Testament, means erasure. It's gone. The word atonement is not used in the New Testament. We don't have a covering over our sins by the blood of Jesus. We have a complete washing of our sins by the blood of Jesus. But back in Leviticus, God makes it clear, don't mess around with blood because blood is going to be assigned to you. It's going to be assigned all the way up until my son dies and then you're going to understand it is what washes you clean. So you don't eat blood, but the outcome of Saul's fleshly command is these hungry people at the end of their pursuit digging right in they could have had honey sweet honey instead now they're drinking blood in the same way gang if if I don't feed my spirit on the pure honey of the word I will end up eating the flesh of the enemy Galatians 6 verse 7 says do not be deceived God is not mocked whatever a man sows this he will reap for the man who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Years ago when we were studying, I believe it was Genesis, we talked about this verse. And that picture of someone taking a hamburger patty and sticking it down in the ground. I'm I'm going to plant some hamburger. And you wait a week, maybe two, and go back and dig it up. Put it between a bun and how's that going to taste? It gets what? Corrupt. It gets rancid. And that's what happens when I sow to the flesh. When I sow the flesh, when I sow meat into the ground, it's just going to get corrupt. But if I sow to the Spirit, what happens? Fruit. Spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. So, again and again, we're told in Scripture, sow to the Spirit. Take a little honey during the day. Spend a little time in prayer. Tomorrow, day of prayer and fasting. You, you want to know how you get through dealing with a fast during a work day? You focus on the Lord. Every time you feel a little pang of hunger, you say, Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Man shall not live, Jesus said, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you get into the word and you pray. And you ask the Lord to give you a word tomorrow, to speak into your heart, into your life. Well, verse 33, again, they rush greedily. They... They ate with the blood. And verse oh, verse 33, then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You've acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one an ox with them and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord it was the first altar that he had built to the Lord he still doesn't get it Saul is now scapegoating the people it's your fault now we're all in trouble because you're eating blood well Saul if you'd let them eat the honey they never would have wanted to eat the blood if they had already been nourished it would not have been an issue but Saul is causing this problem And it's possible, I could be wrong about this, but it's possible he may be getting ready to set up another sacrifice himself, just like he did in chapter 13, which he was not to do. But here he's building an altar. Maybe he's getting ready to to oversee, like a priest, which he was not supposed to be, oversee sacrifices once again. 
Verse 36, Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning till the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. <laughs> Poor little priest. And he's doing his best just to hang on. Saul's wanting to just barrel ahead and, and the priest says, Hey, can we, can we ask if it's alright with God? Can, you know, can, is it okay if we pray? Yes, if you must, go ahead and pray and we'll get on with our business, our important meeting stuff. The priest said, let us draw near to God here. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. There is no answer. God is not responding to Saul. Saul has the priest there. He has him praying. He's, he's called for this altar, had it set up, built up. Why? Because Saul is a prideful man and he's got to keep up appearances. He's got to at least make it look like he is looking for the Lord. He's asking for the Lord's involvement in all this. The whole scenario reeks of a religious life lived out in the flesh. Of someone living in the soul. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Listen to that again. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. David said this. If my thought life is sin-focused, if I'm checking out sinful things in my heart, and I attempt to pray to the Lord, He's not going to listen. That's what David said. I thought about that verse today and I thought, you know, when our prayers go unanswered, sometimes it's because God is wanting us to wait. Sometimes He is doing something and, and we need to ask, what's going on, Lord? What are, what are you doing? But it's also possible our prayers aren't answered because something's out of whack. Because I'm regarding iniquity. Because I have my hand in the world while I'm trying to put my foot in the church. And the Lord's saying, that's not going to work for me. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear me. You know what a good question to ask? When God seems silent in your life, David had another question. He, he said, Lord, would you search me? Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. What do you mean try me? Test me out. Check, check me out. Would you investigate, Lord. Get into my heart. Get into my thought life. See what's going on there. He says, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. One of the reasons why David was a man after God's own heart and Saul was not was David invited God into his most private places. David said to the Lord, if there's sin in me, I want you to know about it. I want you to find it. I am asking you to find it and cleanse me of it. Which, by the way, is why the prophet Nathan was sent to David when David sinned with Bathsheba. Because David had already been asking, Lord, check my heart. So the Lord said, all right. And so his heart was checked by the Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. You know what that really is? It's just confession. It's just taking it to the Lord and saying, Father, I've sinned. There's a problem in my life. Would you cleanse me? Confession is just keeping things real between myself and God. It's, It's maintaining open communication. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But listen, if I walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You know, I've learned, heard that verse many times in my life, and when I've heard it, I always thought that the key to fellowship, you and I, us together as Christians, our key to fellowship is walking in the light. But you know what else? The first time I saw this, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not just with one another, but with one another. If I'm walking in the light, I can fellowship with God because God is in the light. So if my, if my conscience is clean, if, if my if sin is, is continually washed away because I'm continually saying, Father, look in. Cleanse me. See if there's any wickedness in me. Father, I invite you into the most deep and secret and intimate parts of my life. The things that I think that nobody else knows. Father, would you come in there and shine your light around 
and drive out anything that is sin. Boy, how can you how can you approach God with that kind of confidence? Blood of Jesus. You're in salvation. You have faith in Christ. You are a saved person. Saul, however, figures the problem must be with someone else. A couple more verses, and I think we will stop tonight. Saul said, Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. He's still not recognizing the real sin problem was his in the beginning. He has caused all of this problem to take place, and he's now trying to find a scapegoat. And verse 39 says, For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Not one of the people answered him. Let me just point out something here. Saul mentions Jonathan's name. Why? I think it's because Saul knew that Jonathan was the one who ate the honey. Saul right now assumes that God is not answering because someone violated the oath that he made everybody take. So he wants to find out who the person is. And he calls all of Israel together and he says, Draw near you chiefs of the people. What he's going to do is he's going to separate himself and Jonathan on one side and all the people over here and he's going to draw lots. And he's going to see where the lot falls. Well, the lot falls on Saul and Jonathan. So then he draws lots again, and the lot falls on Jonathan. See, the Lord opens this whole thing up. He lets Saul play out this charade. Now, what's amazing to me is is Saul. Saul, I believe, knew Jonathan ate the honey. Saul was tipped off ahead of time, which is why he mentions his son right here. Even if it's Jonathan who violated this oath, even if it's my son Jonathan, he's going to die for it. Why would Saul do that? Because Saul is already threatened by his son. Saul has already recognized two Philistine garrisons, two wars, two battles fought by his son, led by his son. His son is victorious and the people love Jonathan. And he's a threat to Saul's rule and authority, his rule in the flesh. And this guy's a threat to me. What a great way here. We'll blame it on him. We'll find a way to make it his fault and then I can kill him justifiably. His own son. Oh Rick, I, I, I think you're reading too much into it. Watch Saul. This will be the same king who in the middle of David playing in the song will grab a spear and chuck it across the room and try to kill David, try to pin him to the wall. This is the same king who will spend most of the latter part of his life chasing David instead of fighting his enemies because David is anointed to be the next king. This is an incredibly jealous, angry, and bitter man who right now is already looking at the threat in his own family and saying, even if it's Jonathan, I'm going to kill him. Well, Saul wouldn't really do that, would he? Well, we'll find out on Sunday. Let's pray about this. Father, thank you so much for your word that you've given us. And Lord, though we... We are sad to see the direction that Saul goes as king. We are also enlightened ourselves as we look at Jonathan, as we see the courage, the faith that he puts in you. We see him dipping his hand in the honey and that is so encouraging to us when we consider the honey of your word. Father, there are many, many great things in this chapter. But Lord, you know what each of us need to hear. And I pray you would write these things on our hearts and in our minds. And continue to lead us forward. And may we go home tonight, Father, with a taste of honey on our lips. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.